G'day, mate. Forty here. I want to talk about the revolutionary spirit. Is a Jewish revolutionary spirit the left-wing revolutionary spirit, and how does that differ from the American spirit? And uh, we'll get to that after going to Tucker Carlson, and uh, also want to talk about uh, the new Lauren Southern documentary and uh, her dispute with uh, Paul Joseph Watson. So I want to hit that. Man, my my YouTube TV is just running slow. I really am trying to go to, to Tucker Carlson, but uh, I'm depending upon YouTube TV. And Deep Left Jokal, a.k.a. Ken Brown, all right, he has made a video in defense of Drag Queen Story Hour. But, uh, whoa, 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 cut, cut, cut that out, all right? So this is the new Lauren Southern, whoa, 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 stop that. This is new Lauren Southern documentary on uh, Paul Joseph Watson. After I came out with my video saying, I'm back to talk to you guys again. I just want to deal with the truth. I want to make documentaries again. I want to just have this cultural conversation, do what I love. Um, of course, I had all of the people that still believe the Milo article. I don't. Okay, let's uh, let's go to Tucker Carlson tonight. You don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. So Ronnie Jackson saw that and then went on Twitter, and he made the obvious to ask. Yes, I like Gutfeld. I love Gutfeld. Jesse, nice colors. Very pleased. You should see my shorts. How about these suckered it for the U.S. Senate? Watch. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. So Ronnie Jackson saw that and then went on Twitter, and he made the obvious point. Joe Biden, before this goes any further, should undergo a cognitive examination. The country deserves that. Well, within 20 minutes, Jackson recalls in his new memoir, Barack Obama sent him an email, a characteristically sneering one, and we're quoting I have to express my disappointment at the cheap shot you took at Joe Biden via Twitter, Obama said. It was unprofessional. I expect better. So that wasn't just Obama speaking. That was the uniform command of the people who run the Democratic Party throughout the 2020 campaign. Do not notice what Joe Biden is actually like. If you see him on television, turn away because you might conclude he is fundamentally, physically, cognitively unfit for office. But you can't say that, and if you do, Barack Obama will scold you personally, immediately. Well, fast forward a few years. Joe Biden is now the president, and his mental decline is no longer possible to deny, and therefore it's no longer off limits. Barack Obama isn't going out and defending Joe Biden's competence anymore. Everybody watching, everyone in the media, that would include Barack Obama's former advisors, is now in agreement that Joe Biden is senile and cannot govern the United States. He tends to uh, shuffle sometimes mm -hmm. because he has, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, mobility issues that the doctors have identified. Uh, he sometimes his speeches tend to be a little listless, or he seems to momentarily get confused or have trouble summoning names. A third of them, the largest number, said age that he was too old. Yeah. That is a problem that's not going to get better. He's not going to get younger. He's not going to get any younger. I think there are a lot of people who have looked at him over these uh, last uh, years uh, and seen he isn't what he used to be 10 years ago. 
he knows he's 80 years old, 79, 80 years old. He knows he's an old white guy in a party that is demographically changing and diverse, and the future is not going to be an old white guy. When he does badly, when he stumbles, you get nervous, and you wonder, is it just a stutter, is he tired, or something else there? Listen, if anybody says that Democrats aren't beginning to have these questions behind closed doors, that's not true. People are. So the problem with Joe Biden, says Mark McKinnon, is that he's white. Notice the casual racism of the left, 2022. It's ubiquitous. You barely even notice it. That's not the problem with Joe Biden. Who cares what his skin color is? The problem with Joe Biden is he's cognitively unable to serve. But take three steps back. That's not Joe Biden's fault. It's not his fault he has dementia. No, the fact that Joe Biden is president is an indictment of the media and the Democratic Party because they have known. Contrary to what they're telling you now, Joe Biden's decline, his full-blown senility, has been obvious for more than three years. We noticed it. We're not doctors. And by the way, we had no special animus toward Joe Biden at all. But we watched him. And we said this out loud for the first time we checked today on May 14th, 2019. As of today, pretty much everyone paid to prognosticate on television still considers Biden the prohibitive frontrunner in the race. He checks every box. Therefore, he must get the nomination. That's how they think, because they're dumb. What they're leaving out of the equation is Biden himself. Watch this video and ask yourself if Joe Biden is really going to be the Democratic nominee, much less president of the United States. It was shot yesterday in New Hampshire. Keep in mind, we have not altered it in any way. This is entirely real. Watch. Vice President Biden, do you have a comment on the Chinese tariffs? I'll answer this question. The answer is yes, I do. The president has done nothing but increase the tariffs, the, the, the debt, and the trade deficit. The way you have to proceed is we have to have our allies with us. It's not just us. We have to keep the rest of the world together. Secondly, we should, labor should be at the table, as well as our allies, because that's the only thing. And the fourth thing we should do is be focusing on the things that, in fact, I've been talking about for a long time. China's greatest violation is the way in which they steal our intellectual property. We should make it quid pro quo, as I've told when I was dealing with Xi Jinping. It should be simple. Here's the deal. You say that if, in fact, don't... Anything has to be owned 50% by Chinese to invest in China? Guess what? In America, it's the same thing. This idea of dealing with all the only people who are paying the price are farmers and working people right now. He's going about it all the wrong way. A lot of bravado, no action. But wait a second, you're saying to yourself, that didn't make any sense. Not a single phrase in a full minute of talking conveyed an intelligible idea, not one. That wasn't even word salad. It was a verbal Jackson Pollock painting. Nouns, verbs, adjectives spilled like cans of paint, bleeding into each other, a sticky postmodern mess. At one point, Biden actually jumped from point two directly to point four. Just to let you know that your old-fashioned linear assumptions about numerical sequencing are no good here, man. That's yesterday's mathematics. So we put that on the air back in 2019, again, not because we were particularly against Joe Biden. He seemed a lot better than Beto O'Rourke or Mayor Pete. We put it on because we happened to be watching one day and tried to follow what he was saying about China because it seemed important. Now, one national news organization had noted at all that this guy couldn't speak in complete sentences, couldn't convey coherent ideas. Nobody had ever mentioned that. And of course, anyone in Washington knew Joe Biden. He'd been there since 1972. And basically, most people kind of liked him. He was a friendly guy. This was not the Joe Biden anyone who knew Joe Biden had seen before. He completely changed. 
This was clearly cognitive decline. This was dementia, obviously. So we drew a conclusion that now sounds ridiculous, but it seemed logical at the time. This guy can't be the Democratic nominee. He can barely speak. How did he manage to get through the campaign? Well, it turned out, we learned later, his staff, supervised by Dr. Jill, his wife, was giving him pills before every public appearance, checking the time and at a certain hour giving him a dose of something. Now, that's not a guess. We're not making that up. We've spoken directly to someone who was there and saw it happen multiple times. Now, before taking the medication, this person said, Biden was, quote, like a small child. You could not communicate with him. He changed completely because he was on drugs, and he clearly still is on drugs. No one's pushing to know what those drugs are. We should know. But the point is, Joe Biden's dementia was perfectly obvious to everyone around him more than three years ago. So we never thought this could happen. You can't make a senile man president of the United States. This is our country. This is a real country. It needs a real leader, even when you disagree with. But someone who's in full possession of his faculties. No one would ever do that. It's crazy. We're completely wrong. We're wrong because we underestimated the cynicism and the recklessness of the Democratic Party and the media who serve them. They will say literally anything, no matter how implausible or immoral, if it brings them more power. They knew exactly how incapacitated Joe Biden was. They lied about it. And the disaster we're living with today is a direct result of their lying. And it's getting worse. It's humiliating. Yesterday, for example, we could go on for an hour, we're not going to, but just to sum it up. Yesterday, Joe Biden tried to shake an invisible man's hand. Not the first time he's done this. He did the same thing in April. And both of those sad moments are on tape. Here they are. God bless you all. Thank you, President Herzog and President Biden. So if you don't like Biden or his agenda, and we certainly don't, there is a kind of partisan glee you take from this. Look how pathetic he is. But, you know, if you're an American, there's no upside, actually. This is horrible for all of us. It reflects poorly not just on the Democratic Party or Biden himself, but on our country. And it's happening constantly with increasing frequency. On Wednesday of this week, during a trip to Israel, Biden announced that we have to keep alive the, quote, honor of the Holocaust. Huh? Continue, which we must do every, every day, continue to bear witness. To keep alive the truth and honor of the Holocaust, horror of the Holocaust. It's just, it's absolutely awful. And again, there's no upside. So Joe Biden's senile. Everybody knows it. Do we win a prize now? No. We watch our country degrade. So you have to ask, who did this to the rest of us? Who's responsible for putting this guy in a position where he was elected president? Well, we could start the list of the culpable with Joe Biden's 2020 campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon. She did this. Where is she now? Well, she's now deputy chief of staff in the White House. She knew exactly how senile Joe Biden was. Susan Rice knew well, too. Of course she did. Susan Rice now runs America's domestic policy out of the White House. Ron Klain knew perfectly well that Joe Biden was not fit to be president, that he has dementia. Ron Klain was elevated to White House chief of staff. And of course, Dr. Jill, his wife, was perfectly aware. Members of Joe Biden's own family knew perfectly well and told other people about it. We've reported that before, and it's true. And yet they didn't stop him. Mike Donlan was the chief strategist of Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Now he's one of Biden's, quote, senior advisors. Same with Anita Dunn. She was once co-campaign manager. She's now another senior advisor for Biden and a former Obama communications director. 
She has massive power in this country. That's how she was rewarded for foisting this guy on the rest of us. Brian Deese, same thing. The man who screwed up our climate and energy policy during the Obama years. He knew perfectly well Joe Biden was senile. But he wanted power again, so he didn't say a word. Once again, same principle at work. People make grave errors in judgment. They do something horrible to the United States of America, and they're rewarded for it. They're never punished. They're rewarded. These people now run the country. And above all, Barack Obama. Barack Obama knew perfectly well that Joe Biden was senile. Barack Obama spent eight years making fun of Joe Biden and degrading Joe Biden because Joe Biden has no dignity. He put up with it. But Obama knew that Biden wasn't fit to be president. And that matters because Obama is and has always been the person actually running the Democratic Party. And of course, the media knew. They knew perfectly well. But they lied. From day one, they lied. Here they are telling us during the campaign that Joe Biden actually, shut up ageist, is perfectly fine. Well, he just decided to bypass the primaries and go right to the main event and kind of consign everybody else to the kiddie table. That is Joe Biden at his best. That is someone who uh, is authentic. Mm -hmm. It's the reason he connects with people. He is having fun. This is not heavy lifting for, for Joe Biden. Joe Biden never gave up on Joe Biden. And it reminded me so much of 2008 John McCain. Look, help is on the way. Help is on the way. Joe Biden, uh, we need him. You know, you hit play on your phone or whatever, and there's Uncle Joe, Grandpa Joe Biden, talking in a way that I think Americans want to hear. The person, the person of Joe Biden is a welcome entry into this race. Every one of those people knew. Again, we knew and said so out loud, not because we have some special entree into the secrets of the Democratic Party. We certainly don't. We're hardly Democratic Party insiders, but because we watched TV for 90 seconds and we saw unmistakably the signs of dementia in Joe Biden. Every one of the people you just saw lied about what they knew. They hid that fact from you and the rest of the country because they wanted more power. But now the game is over for Joe Biden. As Mark McKinnon said, he's just too white. So suddenly our media is admitting what we noted three years ago and that everyone knew that this was a scam. They are living with the mess they created. And we hope that they will never be allowed to avoid responsibility for what they did. Miranda Devine is a columnist with the New York Post. She's watched all this from the very beginning. She's got a PhD in the media business, having spent her life in it, and we're happy to have her join us now. Miranda, thanks so much for coming on. So it does seem to me like the media, once again, reporting a story three years late, is trying to get away from their responsibility for this disaster. You're so right. It was crystal clear to everybody back in early 2020 in Iowa and New Hampshire where Joe Biden was just woeful. He needed to card around a teleprompter to the smallest town halls with the most, you know, obvious stump speech that every other candidate could recite in their, in their sleep. Um, I watched as the sort of you look around the audience and it just twigged to people that this guy was not all there, Beyond that ego, there was a screw loose. Uh, he was really the special needs candidate. He was ignored. No one showed up to any of his events. Uh, the, it was an open secret in the media. He bottomed out in Iowa, number four, number five in New Hampshire. And one of the, the main culprits that you left out of your very good list of culprits uh, is James Clyburn, who used his authority That's in right. South Carolina among black voters to swing the vote behind Joe Biden and give him the momentum 
system uh, because the Democratic Party had just decided, and Barack Obama as well, that uh, Joe Biden had to be installed to beat Donald Trump because he was the only one who had a sort of a moderate image and uh, he had a very carefully cultivated image that was a myth, uh, that he was this unifying force, that he was a, a, an old Washington image. professional, a great foreign affairs expert, um, and a kind man, a family man, a decent man, uh, you know, a working class Joe, and full of empathy, which the country needed after COVID. Um, none of that was true. And the problem for the Democratic Party was that as soon as voters, pretty much uh, after Afghanistan, when Joe Biden was so callous, so dishonest and so incompetent, uh, the American people saw, including Biden voters, saw who he really was. And I think once somebody that you have admired and uh, you know, respected, looked up to, trusted, once you realise that they're none of those things, that they're a liar, that they're possibly corrupt, that they, they lack empathy, uh, then you can never go back. You, you recoil. And we're seeing that in polls, right. which are just woeful. I mean, uh, you know, just 29%, I think, of Democrat voters want Joe Biden to run again in 29. And of course, the media now sees that. They don't want to be on the losing side. And Joe Biden is surplus so. to requirements now. They don't need him. Uh, they can discard him and they'll be brutal. This is the CNN presidency and they should forever live with that stain, I think. Randy Devine, I appreciate your summation of that very much. Thanks. Thanks, Tucker. So there's always an inverse relationship between the slogan and the reality. So the more they tell you, trust the science, the more they become intent on forcing you to ignore the science, of course. And that's why believing in biology is quickly becoming a criminal offense in countries around the world. One woman in Norway is now facing prison for saying that men cannot be lesbians. We'll give you the commercial break to think about how that might work. She joins us after the break. Plus, we came to Iowa to give a speech here at something called the Family Leadership Summit. That speech is up right now on foxnation.com. You can also watch it over the weekend on drcarlson.com. Lots of dot-coms for your weekend. We'll be right back. Yeah, Tucker sounds, uh, the sound quality is not there for Tucker Carlson, but if he's giving speeches in Iowa, does that not indicate that he's a likely 2024 Republican presidential candidate? Uh, I was not terribly impressed with that segment. I, I'm usually not impressed by Miranda Devine at all. It just strikes me as a right-wing hack. I, I'd never... I don't recall hearing anything insightful for her. So she lambasted Joe Biden for the messy exit from Afghanistan. Joe Biden did the right thing, pulling America out of Afghanistan. The messiness is inconsequential compared to finally getting our troops the hell out of there. Biden did the right thing. Right? From, from where I stand, Biden is more populist and very possibly at least as nationalist as Donald Trump, his policy towards China, this is not me here, geopolitical expert, this is Peter Zion, says that uh, Biden is more populist and more nationalist than Donald Trump, and that his policy on China overall is tougher even than Trump's. So I, I just don't think that uh, the Biden crime family is just going easy on, on China. I, I highly suspicious of that line of thinking. And then 
Oh my God, we've got a president with dementia as opposed to Ronald Reagan. Okay, Ronald Reagan had dementia. Ronald Reagan was not particularly sharp. Suddenly after he got shot, he was never the same after he got shot in March of 1981. So yeah, Biden seems to be in more frail state and more declined than Ronald Reagan. So yeah, on the 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 on the basis of the pictures and on the elocution, yeah, Reagan certainly seems more vigorous than Joe Biden. But uh, Ronald Reagan was an old man with dementia who served two terms as president of the United States. Uh, let, let's go back through other presidents over the past hundred years. Woodrow Wilson was essentially immobilized by a stroke for the last 18 months of his term. All right. He was essentially immobilized by a stroke. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower had heart attacks. He had all sorts of health problems. Uh, FDR was dying. Right. FDR was, you know, had, had one foot in the grave for the, for the last few years of his presidency. Uh, John F. Kennedy had crippling health problems. Right, he was in terrible shape. In addition to being a, a serial uh, sex sexaholic, I'm trying to think of a better term, but just absolutely reckless sex life. Absolutely reckless of him to run for president of the United States. Had horrible health. All right, was on very significant medications. Uh, LBJ. Another serial sexual predator, and uh, and then George W. Bush, right? The worst president in American history, it seems to me. George W. Bush, the worst president in United States history, and I voted for him twice, right? The, the left wing critics, criticisms of him being lazy and incurious, and wanting to throw the long ball in Iraq, they were absolutely right. What a disaster! The invasion of Iraq was what a disaster the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan was. George W. Bush was a terrible president. So I think Joe Biden is far better than George W. Bush. Right. And and Tucker talks about, you know, the forces degrading our country. The forces degrading our country have almost nothing to do with Joe Biden. All right. Tucker's talking about the disaster that we live in today. Uh, what disaster is that exactly? Oh, inflation, right? Every first world country deals with significant inflation that's about as bad as the inflation that the United States has today. Oh, we're not investing enough in fossil fuels. We're dealing with a power and energy shortage. Our lack of investment in fossil fuels is not primarily about the Democrats, all right? The people who have money and want to invest in money have been steadily reducing their investments in fossil fuel since 2014. All right. I, I much prefer, to the extent I know about it, the, the Republican approach, but uh, our problem is not primarily Joe Biden. For the nominees for the 2022 NCAA Woman of the Year Award are out, and Leah Thomas, until just the other day called William Thomas because he's a dude, was just nominated by the University of Pennsylvania for the award. Now, UPenn takes millions in federal subsidies every year, and of course its endowment, billion-dollar endowment, is not taxed. Why do we send them money, and why don't we tax their endowment at the same rate that you pay? Those are questions to think about. But just to restate the case, William Thomas, whatever he calls himself, is a man who won because he's swimming against women who are biologically disadvantaged, right? But for some reason, our media is celebrating cheating in college sports.
Watch. Any advantage held by Leah Thomas? I mean, the margin of those victories are pretty astounding, right? No, they were very long races where those sorts of margins happen. So why are we so afraid of a trans athlete doing well? She is within striking distance of the long-held collegiate records by Missy Franklin and Katie Ledecky. So, of course, we're going to be watching to see if she uh, touches those records. Let's just take a moment, and I would love to do it here on the show, because it hasn't been done in the media very much to celebrate the Thomas. So usually when you get caught cheating, you are apologetic. You're ashamed. Cheating is wrong. It's offense against everything that's noble. But when they get caught cheating, they try to browbeat you if you notice it. Meanwhile, the University of Kentucky swimmer Riley Gaines is a woman, born that way, still is. She's just been nominated by her university for NCAA Woman of the Year. She joins us on Monday to tell her what she thinks of all of this. She is a brave young woman. So it is quickly becoming illegal to point out that men are not women, no matter how they dress, no matter what kind of shoes they have, no matter what they paint their nails. So this is an attack not just on biology, but on speech, on conscience. You're not allowed to say obvious things. Here's an example. A self-described feminist in Norway called Christina Ellingsen is facing a three-year sentence in prison She's facing the possibility of going to jail for years because she affirmed the reality of biological sex. Specifically, Ellingson tweeted that men cannot be lesbians. You probably never thought about this in any depth, but it's technically true. She also said that men cannot become mothers. Now, again, that's true. But in Norway, as in all of the West, the truth is no longer a defense. Norway is now investigating her for hate speech. We, of course, immediately wanted to talk to her. Christina Ellingson joins us tonight. Christina, thanks so much for coming on. This is one of those stories, and Norway is obviously a highly civilized country. I think it's the richest country in the world, a lot of great people in Norway. It's hard to believe this is real, and so I just want to check, are we leaving anything out? No, that's right, this is the case. Uh, I've been, uh, well, you can't have, you can't defend women if you can't define what a woman is. Uh, And all over the world, stating biological facts, is considered by a lot of groups as being directly hateful. So yeah, this is um, what I've been doing. I've been stating the obvious fact that men cannot be women, uh, men cannot be girls yes. or mothers or lesbian. And now I'm uh, facing the risk of three years in prison. T- tell me how the country of Norway, again, a country to which we give every benefit of every doubt, filled with good people, beautiful place, But are you celebrated as a hero by people who still believe in science and free speech? Are people supporting you? Uh, Well, a lot of people are supporting me uh, across the entire spectrum uh, of political, religious, everything. But a lot of people are also considering me on level with uh, someone who's calling for genocide. Uh, I've been compared to everything from a fascist to a Maoist to a supporter of Westboro Baptist Church, which I don't even know what it is. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> uh, the entire spectrum of everything that's bad in the world uh, is being hurled my way. Absolutely. But also a lot of support. Uh, like, I, it's- are, are you surprised? I think you're on, I, I'm just guessing, but I think you're on the left. I don't think you're a right winger. I think you're from Norway. Are you surprised by all of this? 
Unfortunately, I'm not surprised because uh, this has been in the cards for a long time. If you can't talk about biological reality. Uh, oh, come on, man. Uh, it's unavoidable. Uh, this is simply unavoidable. Uh, oh, come on, man. I'm trying to run a show here. I've just been having nothing but trouble with, with YouTube TV here. I am trying to, I'm trying to mount um, this classy yeah, no, production. I, I, Bloody hell. I align myself with the, with radical feminism. Uh, I've been, uh, yes. okay. It's just too, too painful. No. So, all right. Uh, Joe Biden, not fit to be president. Well, you can make a very good case that Donald Trump was not fit to be president. I mean, talk about a childish personality, just like the, the temperament frequently of a toddler. Barack Obama lacked the experience to be president, right? He was a United States senator for two years. He had no foreign policy experience. You can make a very good case that Barack Obama was not fit to be president. George W. Bush was not fit to be president. He was lazy. He was incurious. He was the worst president of our lifetime. And he did not invade Iraq because Bibi told him to, right? Israel and Bibi were primarily concerned about Iran. They were not concerned about Iraq. But the decision to invade Iraq came from Bush and Bush's circle, all right? And it was just, just crazy, r ridiculous uh, idea that, that turned out to be a monumental disaster, but you didn't need the Jews or, or the Jewish state, all right, to push for this, all right? This is something George W. Bush and his team wanted to do, and what a monumental disaster that was. You can make a very good case that Ronald Reagan was not fit to be president, certainly after the assassination attempt. He was not, he was not a well man. Uh, John F. Kennedy definitely was not fit to be president at severe health problems, out-of-control sex life. Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, another out-of-control predatory sex life. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, significant health problems. You could make a strong case he was not fit to be president. Uh, FDR definitely was not fit to be president the last two years uh, of his presidency. And then uh, before that, Woodrow Wilson definitely not fit to be president, inca incapacitated by by a stroke. So Joe Biden is part of a long, long line of people who uh, not fit to be president. All right, let's see if uh, we've got some better quality here from Tucker Carlson. I I'm trying to run a classy show here, guys. Please. Right. I'm a very respectable man. I can't have second-rate audio on Thank my show. Thank you for show. joining us tonight. Right. People Talented. look to me very for the pr premier audio quality. The this, for example, Bloody is an hell. actual segment that aired on NPR. There is a whole community of genderqueer dinosaur enthusiasts online. We had no idea, so we checked it out. Sure enough, they're there. We found dozens of paleo artists online that identify as queer. Type dinosaur into the LGBT subreddit, hundreds of results with pride dinos, rainbow dinos, dino moms, dino dads, and a lot of puns. Like Allysaurus. Transceratops. Oh, the Transceratops. Now, at first we thought we knew where the segment was going to go. Trans dinosaurs. So transgenderism isn't something that appeared out of nowhere. Bigot. It dates back to the Jurassic era. The Transceratops. But that's not actually where NPR went with it. Sadly, there will be no David Attenborough documentary on non-binary two-spirit T-Rexes. Instead, the segment turned, as all NPR segments inevitably do, 
towards self-love and its twin, self-pity. To see, you know, our social enemies, for lack of a better term, taking, you know, these symbols and trying to use it as their dog whistle, it was something where it's just like, wait, where is this even coming from? This makes zero sense. And also dinosaurs are ours. I hate to speak for the entire trans or gender queer community, but like, no, we've already been wondering about them and drawing them and interested. No matter who you are, if you see something beloved taken over by someone else, that can be hard. Suddenly, genderqueer fans of dinos everywhere felt under attack as TERFs kept dropping the emoji into their feeds. <laughs> it's also crazy that you might be tempted to dismiss it, but what it really is is what everything that side believes is, which is a species of narcissism. Dinosaurs are, dinosaurs are ours. They belong to us, says the trans dinosaur expert complaining about, quote, something beloved being taken over by someone else. Now, again, some might call that an example of projection, since when did dinosaurs belong to the trans community? Dinosaurs are everyone. But it makes sense, actually, because it's NPR. By appropriating pterodactyl emojis, the other side is basically killing dinosaurs all over again. That's how much harm they're causing. An extinction. We'll stay on the story, by which we mean we'll keep listening to NPR. At the moment, the dinosaur lobby has been decolonized, we will let you know. Well, it's almost long overdue for another final exam, so we're giving you one. Dagan McDowell believes she has what it takes to bring down Jimmy Fallon, who, for the record, has never actually won. Can she do it? Find out next. Man, that's not who we are as Americans to drop the wrong emojis in a non-binary gender queer dinosaur celebration. That's just that's just not who we are, guys. All right, looking at the chat, why did the Jews vote for Joe Biden at a 75% rate? For the same reason that non-Jewish white people with similar IQs and similar levels of education also voted for Joe Biden at a similar rate, all right? Jews and Anglicans have about the same levels of IQ, around 110 on average, approximately same levels of education. And guess what? They tend to hold the same political opinions, right? The more education people get, the more likely they are to vote for the Democrats. So it makes sense to me also why people who don't belong to the what was at least the white Christian majority of this country are going to, generally speaking, vote for the coalition of the fringe rather than for the white Christian core. So for the same reason that uh, Asians, all right, Filipino Americans, Chinese Americans, all right, overwhelmingly vote for the Democratic Party. Luke, have your thoughts changed on Julian Assange at all? I don't really have any thoughts on Julian Assange. I am sure he did some good. With his revelations, he was also incredibly reckless. They weren't, they weren't thoughtful and considered document dumps. He just dumped a whole bunch of American intelligence information. And I'm sure there were some good things that came out of that. And I'm sure there were some bad things. Whether more good was done than harm, I, I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion. Uh, he did not exercise, say, the level of care that the, the Guardian newspaper did when talking about how our national intelligence agency was uh, tapping all our phones and, and all our internet, all right? So Julian Assange would just dump documents, all right? There, there wasn't a, a considered reporting 
technique done to minimize unnecessary harm. Uh, have my thoughts changed on Steve Bennett? I don't have that many thoughts about Steve Bennett. I think his show is toxic. I think his show is frequently moronic. Uh, I I don't think it ennobles or brings the best out of you to listen to Steve Bennett's show every day, but there's some good stuff on it. I'm generally sympathetic to his nationalist populist ideology, and he seemed to have done a really good job running Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. A fish rots from the head, I, I guess, right? So a leader has has importance. Uh, I, I would suspect that organizations and groups and fishes can rot from many different places. I don't believe they exclusively or primarily rot from the head, right? A lot of rot comes from the ground up or it comes from the sides. So I, I don't think we're doomed just because Joe Biden has some cognitive and, and health problems. We could have stayed in Afghanistan until 2050 with the Eric Prince plan. Yeah, but we don't have any vital national security interests for staying there. We should never have been there in the first place. Ronald Reagan got dementia only after being shot. Yes, so he was in office for less than two months. All right, so he only had dementia for the last seven years and 49 weeks of his presidency. Show us some clips of Ronald Reagan sounding bad. I, I can't do that. I, I did make the point that uh, Reagan looked and sounded a lot more impressive than does Joe Biden. But there's absolutely no connection between looking impressive, sounding impressive, and being impressive. Right? All sorts of impressive people are inarticulate or stumbling. So what matters primarily with Joe Biden is the, the people that he has directly under him, the people that he, I would expect, played some role in, in selecting. And I don't expect that he's going to go invade another country like George W. Bush. If Joe Biden simply finishes his presidency without mounting a disastrous invasion like the 2003 Iraq invasion, then he will be a far superior president to George W. Bush, who I voted for twice. What an idiot I was. The starting point with every Jewish diaspora is the question, is it good for the Jews? That should be the starting point of every group, right? That, I think, is a noble thing. I think that's a good thing. You frequently should put your interests first ahead of abstract principles. Right? If you're just putting abstract principles ahead of your own group's best interests just reflexively, then I don't think your group is going to do particularly well in the world. So everybody's group should, first of all, ask, you know, what is best for our group? Right? I think that's a good thing. Uh, Biden was easier to control than Trump. Uh, Biden's governing uh, pretty much as he's always governed, all right? He's, he's a center-left uh, Democrat, friendly to the labor movement, having to deal with bewildering times, with, with you know, the, the left being increasingly taken over by you know, the wokesters. So I'm looking at Tucker Carlson's show, and it's some ridiculous exam. So I'm just going to skip that. This is a very intelligent, high IQ show. I don't need some stupid game show. Democrats have canceled oil leases. Yeah, that seems to me like a bad idea. Democrats have certainly played a role 
in reducing our access to fossil fuels and for providing incentives for, for gas prices to go up. But the primary problem is not the Democrats. The primary problem is not Joe Biden. All right. There's been a steady, significant decline in funding for fossil fuels since 2014. This is something that goes far beyond the Democrats and Joe Biden. Biden has no successes he can point to. He got us out of Afghanistan. That was an enormous success. It doesn't matter. It's like if you're in a bad relationship. I have been in bad relationships. All right. The most important thing is to get out of them. Right? It's how how you do it is usually less important than that you do it. If you have destructive, dangerous, creepy, defective losers in your life, people who are dragging you down, then generally speaking, the quicker you get get out of those relationships or at least minimize them in your life, the better off you are, even if it gets a little bit messy and people start you know, falling off of planes in their desperation to get out. So Joe Biden got us out of Afghanistan. Thank you, Joe Biden. Good on you, mate. Great job getting us out of Afghanistan. Joe Biden has generally speaking steered a populist nationalist course. He, according to Peter Zion, has been tougher on China even than Trump. He's been more populist than Trump. He's been more nationalist than Trump. That's Zion's analysis. I, I find it thoughtful. Donald Trump did a lot for criminal justice reform and marijuana decriminalization. Oh, okay. Look, what do you recommend for a furry <laughs> to be a regular person? Uh, go to church or synagogue or, or mosque. This IQ crap is getting really boring. People with a higher IQ readily accept a false reality. Well, reality may be really boring to you, but IQ is very significant. Now, high IQ people will be more interested in abstract things and frequently those abstract things will be really stupid if not evil so only a high iq person in the west could be enthusiastic about communism or about the whole trans movement on the other hand high iq people tend to pay more in taxes than they take out in welfare payments they tend to be more productive and they have a greater capacity for empathy because empathy requires abstract thought. What measures abstract thought is intelligence, IQ. So is every high IQ person super empathic? No, but medium to low IQ people do not even have the capacity for empathy, right? So higher IQ people at least have the capacity for empathy, whether or not on an individual basis they choose to wield it, right? Depends on the individual, but you are far less likely to get murdered walking through a high IQ part of town. You're far less likely to get raped walking through a high IQ part of town. You are far less likely to get robbed walking through a high IQ part of town. You are far more likely to be helped, right? If your car breaks down, if you drop or lose your wallet or your phone, right? If, if you collapse to the, to the ground with a heart attack or a stroke, you're far more likely to get help in a high IQ part of town than in a low IQ part of town. Generally speaking, right, you want higher IQ people around you, right? The quality of your life will be largely determined by the average IQ of the people you hang out with.
or that you live around, right? High IQ people produce communities with low rates of crime, high rates of productivity, and generally higher rates of social cohesion. Higher IQ people are more likely to seek win-win solutions, right? Higher IQ people are much less likely to rape you and to murder you and to torture you. George W. Bush got us started with the massive spending that led to the Federal Reserve printing up money that led to the highest inflation in U.S. history. Luke was in some bad relationships. Yes, I have definitely been in. <laughs> uh, wow. Starline says, damn, Luke, you're really good at life advice. Not being sarcastic is important to end those downside relationships. Well, this is what I think the awkward truth is. I have had a life generally lacking in adequate levels of human connection and this has been a tremendous source of pain for me and it has made me less effective less happy and so i've devoted an enormous amount of time thinking about and studying all sorts of normal human skills that normal people don't even have to think about right Two-thirds of the population is normal. It's called uh, secure attachment if you want the psychological perspective. So normal people form friendships fairly easily with people who are good to them, and normal people flee from people who are bad to them. But due to the trauma of my early childhood, I have spent an enormous, uh, enormous amount of time with people who are bad for me, with people who beat me, with people who degrade me, with people who treat me like crap, and a large part of my psyche considers that normal. And so I've had to gradually deprogram myself from all these responses I have to stimuli that do not serve me. So, for example, I have a desperate mother hunger. And I have a desperate father hunger. Because of the chaos of, of my early years, I, I didn't get to form those normal relationships and bonds with a mother or a father. And so out of my desperation for a father and a mother, I have this huge thirst for attention, just, just rocket fuel desire for attention. And it's just, just under the surface. And that will destroy my life if I express that in an, in an unproductive way. And I have spent much of my life expressing my huge desire for attention in unproductive ways, usually by being obnoxious by thrusting myself forward, by trying to take charge when that wasn't appropriate, by offending people, all right? My huge thirst for attention has been a disaster. I, I've spent, you know, way too much of my life online trying to make something of myself and like, hey, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. Now, I'm not a shrinking violet anymore. I'm still here uh, online and I still want people to pay attention to me and I still have that thirst for attention. I think I've made some progress, particularly over the last six years, so that I am channeling this urge for attention in more productive means so that I'm no longer saying things online as often or as severely that handicap the rest of my life. So I used to write things online and say things online that would then damage my real life and make it difficult for me to have normal levels of human relationships. So. I started to recognize the severity of this problem that I had 
and start to channel it. I started to recognize that I thought being abused was just normal. And I would just stick around and come back for more and more and more. I remember I used to do a show with James DiGiorgio, a porn director. And he said, you know, I can totally see you as a battered husband. You know, you would just put up with it and then complain about it to, to your friends or, or to your therapist. But you would, you would just put up with it. And so for, for much of my life, I've just evinced the, the characteristics of a beaten dog. You know, that dog who's kind of frightened and, and it would just, you know, re react, overreact to, to any stimuli. So I've had to reprogram my basic responses to stimuli. So one response to stimuli I, I've always had is, you know, see an attractive woman. And as long as I'm not feeling like crap that moment, right, if I'm feeling like crap, which I've felt like crap much of my life, then I, I won't approach. But if I feel decent to above decent, like I would, you know, put the hard word on her fairly quickly. And I would frequently do this in really gross ways that, that made women feel disgusted and that some of them, they, they cried about the, the horrific ways that I would approach them. I'd put my hands on them way too quickly. Oy. So I had to reprogram my responses to stimuli. So now I think I am fairly good at recognizing when a woman has no interest in me and I just, you know, leave her alone. But I didn't recognize that for decades, just made a total ass of myself. So I've had to basically, you know, do things that would reprogram my response to stimuli. So I used to like be really jumpy, right? Any stimuli would come along, you know, just have, have this inordinate uh, reaction. I, I would just go into fight or flight or freeze really easily. And so my years of Alexander Technique training helped me to come out of that. I had a horrible posture until starting my Alexander Technique training in 2009. When I started my Alexander Technique training, uh, people didn't think I would, I would graduate. They didn't think I would last because my posture, my ingrained habits of needless compression and contortion and just weird patterns of, of muscular tension that I had, like people thought that uh, I was going to drop out really quickly. So I had to I had to unwind and let go all of these unhelpful patterns that I had of just unnecessary tightening and, and compression. So, wow, I could talk about myself for way too long. Let's get uh, Lauren Southern. No, let's go to Kevin Michael Grace here. So I guess you've all been waiting for me to deliver my verdict on the uh, Lauren Southern uh, versus Paul Joseph Watson, a contretemps. And I haven't watched her video, and I don't think I'm going to. It's, what, almost three hours long. Also, she's being interviewed by Blair White, a uh, trans woman. Uh, that does not uh, bespeak uh, seriousness uh, to my mind. And okay, so let's have a look here. Oh, that, that this is Lauren Southern talking to Blair White. Too many of people's politics had nothing to do with actual political positions and everything to do with their personal lives. So if they yes. felt personally jilted, yes, then suddenly they would really care about this one political issue or really care about calling out this one grifter or whatever. So like in the case of Paul, the last time I ever saw him was when I rejected him and I told him I didn't want to sleep with him at his apartment in Battersea because I was looking for something serious. Said goodbye. Have and you told us before? Uh, no, I say it in the manifesto, but this is the first interview I've okay. done about it. Okay. <laughs> Are you okay over there? Yeah. It's just keep going, please. 
<laughs> don't stop actually the tea is cold but there's a lot of it and i'm waterboarding people with it so <laughs> um, yeah so i told him like no i'm looking for something serious i don't want to sleep with you and then um we were supposed to go on another date. It didn't happen. And I kept receiving insane text messages from this guy, like at 3 a.m. with Kanye lyrics. Like they were clearly like cocaine fueled rants at me. And even just a year ago, I received rants like this from him as well. Like F you fake bitch whore. Like just, oh, that's you know, so when bizarre. you get those messages where it's like every second you're getting a new message and yeah. it's all like one word instead of typing in sentences and paragraphs right. and you blow up with like 40 messages on your phone. So I'm having to sit there and I hate getting into, I, I think it's bad manners to like talk about dating stuff, to talk about private life stuff in the political sphere. But I'm sitting here having to watch this guy talk about how I'm an inauthentic bitch grifter whore. As if he wasn't trying to fuck you. As if he wasn't trying to fuck me. And as if he's doing it because he's on some moral crusade and not because he's a 40 year old man that reacts like a child to rejection. Okay, so the Lauren Southern documentary, yeah, it's about three hours long, but watch it at two X. It's really easy to watch it at double speed, so you can you can speed through it in a little over an hour. Let's get more Tucker. We're back in Iowa. Just gave a speech to the Family Leadership Summit. A barn burner, a stem winder. Pick your oratory cliche or none at all. You can watch it if you want on Fox Station or over the weekend. You can find it on TuckerCarlson.com. So tech companies are spending millions of dollars to stump, stop something called the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. The vote could come as soon as next month. So why are they interested in this? Well, the law would limit tech companies' ability to abuse their monopoly status to crush their competitors, which, of course, is their entire business model. We all remember when Amazon, Google, and Apple used their monopoly power to crush the social media app Parler. So you don't want to live in that kind of country where a bunch of Chinese-influenced multinationals decide what you can say or think. So how can we stop that kind of abuse? And where do key Republicans stand on this? Whose side are they on? Mike Davis is founder and president of the Internet Accountability Project, which unlike so many tech lobby groups is legitimate. He just wrote a piece on this and we're happy to have him join us now. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Thank um, you. First, just sum up since you are the expert, crisply for us, if you would, what this bill does. Sure. Big tech monopolists, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple have too much power. They're too influenced by yes. China. And they use this power to crush competition, shutter small businesses, and silence uh, conservatives and others uh, with whom they disagree. And what this bill does is it finally breaks up big tech's gatekeeping power over commerce and information in this country. And there is a rare closing bipartisan window of opportunity this summer to finally uh, to, to break up this gatekeeping power. And Republicans must get on board with this. It's time for them to put up or shut up. So for Republican leaders, you're either on the side of Google and censorship or you're on the side of your own voters and free speech. Let's name names. Who is on the wrong side? Who do you fear will be on the wrong side? Who needs to be encouraged? Well, this will be a big test for House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. This will be a big test 
for House Judiciary Ranking Member Jim Jordan. My former boss, Chuck Grass Grassley from Iowa, has delivered the Republican votes in the Senate. Let's see where McCarthy and Jordan stands on this uh, crucial bill to hold big tech accountable. So a lot hangs on this quickly. If you're following at home and you're not you know, deep in the minutia of Congress, when can we look for this to become, you know, a major news story? When's the vote? Well, it, it, there hasn't been a vote. Chuck Schumer needs to schedule the vote in the Senate. The, the votes are there. Chuck Schumer needs to, to move forward with the vote. And then House Republicans need to get on board. So there's a bipartisan coalition to get this done this summer, this month, before Republicans and Democrats go into their warring camps for the midterm elections. Yeah. This has to happen now or it's not going to happen. Unbelievable. Mike Davis, I appreciate your paying attention to this, all the work that you do on it. So few people you can trust on this. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Okay, looking at the chat, uh, Star Lion says, that monologue, Luke, was super helpful. I definitely need to keep working on my posture. It really changes everything, having a healthy spine, healthy nose, vagus nerve especially. So here's my thought. So problems with posture akin to, say, having problems with alcohol. Let's say you drink too much, right? Drinking the excess alcohol consumption is not the problem. It's just a symptom of the problem. Let's say you spend too much time online. Spending too much time online is not the problem. It's just a symptom of a much deeper problem. Let's say you spend too much money online. Spending too much money online is not the problem. It's just a symptom of the problem. Okay, I am a, let me personalize it. I am a 56-year-old bachelor who's never had a romantic relationship longer than a year, right? My bachelorhood is, of course, an anomaly in Orthodox Judaism. My inability to sustain a romantic relationship longer than a year, right? These are not the problem. These are symptoms of a deeper problem that I am having to struggle and relearn normal levels of human connection. When you start to develop normal levels of human connection, then the dating and mating and, and marriage thing starts to take care of itself, right? The reason that you drink too much or you eat too much or you watch too much porn or you spend too much time online or you spend too much money, right? These are just symptoms because you're doing these things to fill a hole in your soul or to feel... Whoa, where's my sound there? To get rid of an unpleasant feeling, right? When you feel down, when you feel bad about yourself, when you feel unhappy, you have learned a coping mechanism to make the sadness go away. And that coping mechanism might be drinking, it might be using porn, it might be spending money, it might be attention seeking, it might be seeking stimuli online. But the underlying problem remains a lack of ease with yourself, right? And so posture problems simply reflect primarily a lack of ease with yourself. The problem is not that your shoulders are curving inward. The problem is not that there's excess tension in your face, in your forehead, around your eyes, around your lips, or in, in your neck, or in, in your lower back. These are all reflections of a deeper problem that you're not at ease with yourself. When you become at ease with yourself, right, you will start to have easier relationships with other people. And then the need to act out in these destructive 
ways starts to diminish. So we develop these, these unconscious reactions to stimuli, right? We do what we do because we're doing the best we can to make it through life, right? I wasn't wanking to pornography three times a day uh, because I rationally chose that, right? That was the best tool that I had to deal with my anxiety, to deal with my depression, to deal with my inability to connect normally with other people, right? We all do the best we can. I didn't choose to be a sex and love addict. Like, you didn't choose to be an alcoholic. You didn't choose to be a marijuana addict. You didn't choose to have bad posture. You didn't choose to be socially isolated. You didn't choose to be an incel. Right? You didn't choose to be a bachelor. You didn't choose to be alienated from your family. You didn't choose to be a college or a high school dropout. You didn't choose to be an under owner or a debtor. You, like me, were doing the best you could to meet your needs with the tools you had available. And so pawning and drinking and drugging, right, and, and compressing and tightening and distorting your musculature and having all these weird tension patterns, these were the best tools that you had available to deal with the, the pain and the anxiety and the inner emptiness, right? So you're doing the best you can. And so these coping mechanisms are not the problem, right? These coping mechanisms are symptoms of a deeper problem of being not at ease with yourself and with the, the world around you. So once you start to start feeling at ease with yourself, then you can start to take in feedback that shows you where various responses to stimuli are not serving you. So for example, I sometimes have a problem with food. I sometimes am tempted, sometimes sorely tempted to eat too much because a full stomach reduces my anxiety. When I eat a big meal, right, the blood rushes to my stomach to help me digest the meal and it reduces my anxiety, right? It is comforting to me. I get pleasure from the food and then I get a reduction in anxiety from having a full stomach. So this is a reaction to the stimuli of feeling empty inside, right? When I don't feel empty inside, I'm not nearly as tempted to overeat. So I had horrible posture. One, I modeled my father's horrible posture. Two, I was dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression and rage. And the way I, I dealt with it is that I would tighten up. I would tighten my shoulders. I, my head would get into a distorted relationship with, with my spine. I had all these weird interfering tension patterns, but I didn't deliberately choose to deform myself. I was doing the best I could with these internal and external forces that I couldn't handle. All right. So I was, when I was young, you know, I had the heck, you know, beaten out of me on a regular basis, you know, by, by people I could not get away from. So I learned certain adaptive coping mechanisms that when I was going to get bounced off the walls, that I would make myself smaller and tighter to try to reduce the amount of exposure I had to getting beaten and, you know, developing the coping mechanism, making my smell smaller and tighter. All right. I, I would become more, more likely to survive getting smashed against a wall, 
get, getting beaten by other people, all right? If you're going into a car accident, you should tighten up and make yourself smaller, all right? When you're getting beaten on a regular basis, you should tighten up and make yourself smaller and kind of protect yourself, kind of pull in, right? Pull, pull your head down onto your spine, make yourself smaller and tighter. And then when you are bounced off the walls and doors and uh, countertops, all right, you're going to deal better with that. So I developed an adaptive response to having getting beaten on a regular basis, particularly in unexpected ways. I would often not see when the slap is coming, right? So I developed an adaptive response, but then it became maladaptive because that became the way I kind of went through life. I, I went through life in a, in a posture where I was unconsciously preparing to be smacked around. And I took that into my teens, into my 20s, into my 30s, into my 40s. But that that no longer served me. So when you start to feel some ease with yourself, then you can start to take in feedback about just from, from your own life experiences. Like, oh, you know, I, I overate again. That's not serving me. What's going on here? Oh, I was feeling sad. I was feeling mad. I was feeling anxious. I wanted those feelings to go away. So I ate too much, right? So maybe I need to exercise much more discipline with my eating. Maybe I need to join a 12-step program, whatever it is. But when you start to feel increasing ease with yourself, it becomes easier to take in feedback that you get from other people and from life itself that uh, things need to change, right? So... Let's say I humiliate myself at work with a lack of attention to detail. If I, if I remember that humiliation, all right, then I don't want to experience it again. So the next time I get into that situation, it's like, okay, I'm going to have a different response to this stimuli. And with posture, we have all these unconscious responses to stimuli that deform us, that pull us down and in. And so the, the, most effective way to good posture is not by consciously taking on what you think is good posture. It's by noticing a whole panoply of responses to stimuli that don't serve you. That could be having a head out front of, of your spine, or it could also be you know using too much porn or eating too much or talking too much or all sorts of histrionic or maladaptive responses to stimuli that don't serve you will also deform your musculature, deform your posture. So when you start letting go of these instinctive responses to stimuli that don't serve you, when you learn to notice them and not act on them, when, when you inhibit those habitual responses that aren't serving you and you put yourself in a position of neutrality, it's like, okay, I've been in this situation before, 57 times previously, I have reacted in this certain fashion. I now realize that that reaction doesn't serve me. So I am just going to place myself in a position of neutrality rather than reaction. And so for posture and for many other things, a direct frontal assault on posture is like, oh, I'm going to stand up straight. And uh, that's, that's not going to do it. You have to learn to detect those habitual responses to stimuli that do not serve you. And as you let go of those maladaptive responses, then the better responses start to flow out of you. And then 
the head will start to elevate. Once you stop pulling down on yourself, right, then the head will start to lengthen, lead your spine into length. When you stop compressing your shoulders, when you get out of that defensive crouch, right, then the shoulders will naturally start to expand and, and widen. When you stop tightening your, your lower back and, and kind of distorting, like you get you know, a sway back, M many people like in, in the lower back is kind of swayed back, Right? When you stop deforming yourself, the right patterns of conducting yourself will often just step in of themselves. So notice the habitual responses to stimuli that don't serve you. Write them down. Talk about them with people who know. So a great Alexander Technique teacher can be helpful or a good uh, mentor, a good friend, or a good therapist, or a good life coach. or like we need other people, right? We need other people to give us feedback on, on all sorts of things that we don't see. Honestly, I knew it was a big deal when it came out, but I didn't think there would be that many people that still Talking remembered and thought about it. But there nasty were. Expose. There were a lot of people who still believed it uncritically at the time. And one person that was right out of the gate, ready to slam down that narrative again, was Paul, who, right when I made my video, decided to tweet out, right-wing YouTuber suddenly returns, claiming to be nuanced centrist, which I never said, having disappeared at the exact point where everyone else was fucked over and banned for the last 18 months, having thrown them under the bus by funding the very people responsible for all that. Inauthentic. And this was just one of many tweets he sent about me that day saying I was a grifter, I was inauthentic. And uh, the chat says, Forty, how do you feel about never owning a piece of land? I'm struggling with that right now, hoping someday I can own something. Well, the most important things you can own are good relations with other people. Right? That's 50 times more important than owning land. I was an evil Antifa spy, all of this stuff. The only real accusation I could discern from Paul's cocaine-fueled rants about me on Twitter was that I had retired at the exact moment when Infowars and all these other people were being banned. And to that, I would say I deeply apologize that my pregnancy and visa issues were so rude as to not pay attention to the news cycle. But the funny thing about this is the exact thing that Paul is attacking me for here, the exact issue that he is bemoaning me for, is exactly what Paul did at the time. In fact, Alex Jones reached out to Kate. Wait, doesn't, doesn't Paul Joseph Watson kind of have a history of being a sex pest, not just with regard to Lauren Southern? right when InfoWars was being banned off everything and said this Paul has gotten real tense about promoting InfoWars or anything now that this ban has happened and he's not being really responsive so it's all this timidness and other stuff Alex complained in a voice note everyone else I work with is starting to get really nebulous so to Paul for this accusation I say physician heal thyself you have almost completely cut yourself off from InfoWars to protect yourself and you have the audacity to accuse me of doing just that but worse than all that is why Paul is attacking me because of course of course when we're dealing with these figures from the dissident right it can't just be that he has this true faith and needs to find the frauds in the movement to expose them to the right no there has to be a personal factor to it well imagine my shock imagine my shock imagine my shock well imagine my shock i don't like to talk about these things publicly i don't think it is good manners in any regard but my father always told me lauren and the chat says go get some land a good relationship is not going to get you out of a bind when the fall of civilization happens a good relationship or a series of good relations with other people is 50 times more likely to be useful when disaster strikes than simply owning land. Right? The thing that will help you survive disaster, whether it's inflation or an earthquake, is primarily your friendships. The quality of your relationships with others will be far more useful than title to a piece of land. Don't start a fight, but finish one. 
So the last time I saw Paul Joseph Watson, we went on a date. Perhaps my worst tribe in politics. Uh, he took me to a restaurant in Battersea. It was horrendous dinner conversation, if I'm being honest. But uh, we went back to his flat, chatted for a few hours, had cigars, and he wanted to sleep with me. Like a good conservative influencer, right? And I'm no saint. I'm not a perfect person, and I'm not going to pretend to be. But at that time, I had absolutely decided I was looking for something serious. I wanted a family. I didn't want just a one-night stand. So I told Paul that. I said, you know what? No, I'm sorry. I'm looking for something serious. And he walked me to his door, questioned me a few times on it, asked me to stay, and I said, no. Goodbye. I'm leaving. And ever since that day I rejected him, I've received nothing but insanity from the man. From crazy text messages at four in the morning, cocaine-fueled rants that go on for hours, sending me Kanye lyrics, asking me to go on dates with him in Europe. It has genuinely been insane. And of course, spreading gossip that I'm a antibus spy, a slut, a whore, all of these things, because what better name to call a girl who won't sleep with you than a whore, right? But just, I have never, ever seen a man react so badly to rejection. I've never seen a man act so jilted, so scorned. And you know what, Paul, if you want to deny any of this, if you want to pretend that you truly were on some moral crusade against the, the frauds and the inauthentic people in the movement, as if you don't have a few things to say about that, you can deny all of this. And I'd be happy, more than happy, to provide more evidence for it. But I don't think you want me to do that. So we'll just leave that there. Wait, cut out the music. So the chat says, okay, then don't come to me when you need tomatoes planted. Bro. I've been building this relationship with you. Uh, of course, I, I've been planting a relationship with you. All right. So, of course, I'm going to come to you when I need some potatoes planted. Uh, oh, potatoes, tomatoes. All right. I like Colin Liddell's analysis here that uh, the dissident right is no place for women. There have been quite a large number of prominent ones over the years. This is largely thanks to the beta orbiter effect. Any reasonably attractive woman, right, or just a woman who becomes an ego can be assured of a mass following, even Claire Core. And Colin notes that a female gains around 100 to 500 times as much attention as an equally intelligent and verbally dexterous male. That is true. So there's not a lot of introspection by Lauren Southern in this new documentary. Right, she got 100 to 500 times as much attention as an equally talented, equally hardworking man would have in her position. But the downside, just as with being a porn star, is that the overwhelming majority of that attention is going to be malicious and it's going to be creepy. So women enjoy the spotlight for a while, but the sane ones are repelled by it and they disappear like meteors. They burn brief and bright. So Lauren Southern seems to have more legs in this than most. Right, so she's probably the most popular female in the distant right. So she was a, an e-personality from, what, about 2015 until about uh, 2018. So following the election of Trump and the subsequent crackdown on distant writers, things became harder for Lauren Southern. She found herself deplatformed, demonetized. Her propensity to network and seek boosting from other distant right personalities brought her into contact with some of the biggest ship magnets out there like Milo and Tommy Robinson. So following her break from the dumpster fire that is the distant right, by 2018-2019, uh, Lauren took a break, but then she came back in, what, 2020? So her break was fairly short. 2020 videos were much less overtly political, therefore less likely to be banned by YouTube, more self-reflective. So this pattern of behavior lines up with what is known about her pre-distant right life as a cosplayer, suggests that Lauren is mainly about getting people to notice Lauren 
At best, she only has a transient and minimal commitment to the principles and positions she intermittently espouses in her videos. So these used to include elements of white nationalism and Islamophobia, which was necessary to fit in with the alt-right, alt-light, and identitarian crowd. Generally speaking, her views centered much more around low-hanging fruit, right-wing libertarian positions like more free speech and anti-vax. One thing is clear about Lauren Southern. She has a tendency to promiscuously network with a wide array of people whose characters she consistently misjudges or doesn't even even bother to judge. Uh, this seems to be a psychological constant. So, yeah, she doesn't seem to really reflect on her own role in her misfortunes. right? If she had a regular job, she would not have gotten into this misery. right? She got 500 times more attention than what an equally talented, equally hardworking man would have received, but that attention is going to be dominantly creepy, which is exactly what she expressed, experienced. Her success was largely due to her being an attractive woman in the dissident right. There's an enormous thirst for that. Right? She would not have had the success she had. She had not been so provocative and sensationalist, but there is a downside to being provocative and sensationalist, right? So she would not have had the heartbreak if she had, abstain from being unnecessarily provocative and sensationalist. So there's a wise saying in the Talmud, I don't want your honey and I don't want your sting. Right? She got the honey of massive attention, but then she also got the sting that comes with it. Right? You can have a more widely watched you know, online show by being incredibly provocative and down market and blood sporty. And I certainly feel that tug. I enjoy having a large audience but when you push out that kind of material, it comes with a really nasty sting at unexpected times. So Lauren's own yearning for attention led her to bad places. Nothing wrong with yearning for attention. I often feel that myself. What matters is how you direct that yearning for attention. She allowed her yearning for attention to lead her to being highly sensationalist and provocative and to network with some pretty bad people. So a porn star is going to receive a million times more attention than a good woman who stays home and raises her kids. And she talks a lot about Milo Yiannopoulos in this video, and it just makes me think if there's anything genuine in Milo's religious transformation, he would be making amends for the horrible way he's treated people. I mean, if there's anything genuine in Richard Spencer's transformation, he'd be making amends for the horrible ways he's treated people. And then, oh yeah, do you know the Twitter personality, Ayala Girl? She's on OnlyFans. Right? She gets a million times more attention than she would if she weren't a porn star. So Lauren doesn't talk much about audience capture. She grew towards what her audience wanted, even though that was really bad for her best interests. So the attention and the success she received turned her head. Right? You were able to keep your thirst for attention and fame and success in check. Or does this thirst check you? So, a lot of interesting bits in this uh, Lauren Southern doco. Whoa, come on, cut out. I'm trying to run a very respectable show here. Cut out the music. Cut out the the gay ops. Just uh, give me give me high-quality content here, Lauren. So the, the docker runs almost three hours, but you can definitely run it at 
to speak. And Milo's career is just skyrocketing. He's uncontactable, haven't heard from him in ages. He's on every TV screen. He's going on Bill Maher, speaking at every campus in America, protests every day, just insane. I'm at home just picking up groceries and I don't know where I get a call from him. I remember being in a parking lot in Walnut Grove and just seeing Milo calling my phone. I pick up and the man is just frantic. He's talking about Alam Bokhari, of all people again, saying, Lauren, this is terrible. Alam has joined the left. He is working for Antifa. He is trying to leak all of my documents. He is trying to ruin my life. He's trying to take down the right wing. Don't you remember how horrible he was to you last year? This man is insane and he is going to ruin my life. I've got contacts with Azalea Banks. I've got all these celebrities. He's got their phone numbers. He's got their messages. He's going to leak them all to the far left media. He is trying to take down the conservative movement and I need your help. I know he said horrible things to you or your cameraman. Any blackmail you have will help me right now. It will help me stop this far left attack on, on me. That will destroy my life. And of course, I... I hadn't really spoken to Alam in a while. Um, I had no reason to disbelieve Milo. He hadn't provided any proof for this, but he was Milo Yiannopoulos. He was the head of the conservative movement. Of course, what he's going to do and what, you know, his word is God's will at this point if you're a young conservative watching politics, right? It's Milo. So I just say, of course, Milo. Like, of course, I'll help you out. That's crazy. I have no idea why Alam would do that, but let me see if I can find something. And uh, that was that. I didn't hear from Milo for ages afterwards. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't know what came of all that. I just... Okay, let me get some. Amber. Let me Amber. back up here. So you just came out here to see all the here she is in LA with Milo. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a great cause. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for the <laughs> We went back to this apartment we were all staying and just quickly emailing off the footage, getting it all edited, prepared for release. Just so excited by this. Look at these crazy feminists. They're attacking us. They can't even have a conversation. They're ripping up our signs. They're calling the police. That was the content that really shocked people at the time, right? Because it, that, that going on the ground and actually confronting another person about their ideas in this environment. It was very new. And we we're just sitting there hanging out after, so excited about it all. I remember, yeah, we went to a bar or something after, and it was just Milo, Alam, and I. And I got along super well with Milo and Alam, particularly Alam. He was such a sweet guy. I remember we're both, I was, I cannot stress enough what a dork I was before I got into this political world. I went to anime conventions, you know, video games, read tons of fantasy. I was into all that stuff. And Alam was a bit dorky too and liked politics. So we got along really well. He'd laugh at my jokes, talk about, you know, all, all these different animes that he had seen as well. And, you know, we, we stayed in contact for, like, weeks, months after that and got along really well. We had a fantastic friendship. Cut for a second. Went on a long, unnecessary rant here. Just going to give you the TLDR. Alam and I went on a few dates in December of 2015. I ended things. Obviously, like any normal person, Alam was upset. And when venting to a mutual friend of ours, made a joke that he could leak a ton of my offensive messages to the press or public if he wanted to. I'm talking, like, old, classic 2015 4chan memes. And when my friend told me this, he made it sound like the most serious, dire thing in the world. And I truly thought my reputation was about to be destroyed. My life destroyed. The political career I'd barely even started yet. Joke's on me. I ended up making all of those offensive memes my political career anyways. But, um, none of that ever happened. Alam never leaked anything on me. He actually ended up apologizing for the fact that we fell out and I to him as well, and we're really, really good friends to this day. And to me, this really speaks to the all-or-nothing view of relationships that my generation has been sold by overzealous feminists on the one hand and right-wingers on the other. We're told we have to see entire sexes as either completely villainous or completely pure, and to interpret bad moments in our relationships as moral outrages, the end of the world. It's 2017, man, the years have all meshed together, but Milo Yiannopoulos started a grant called the White Privilege Grant to help poor young men. White men. Obviously, there are a million grants for black men, there are a million grants for women, Latina, mothers, whatever it be, but there are a whole heck of a lot of poor, rural, white people in America that have no grants for them. So it was a really cool opportunity for conservatives to give and help some people that have kind of been left behind and forgotten in society, right? And don't have anything for them. So a lot of people gave money. It was over $100,000 people gave to Milo Yiannopoulos to create this, this uh, white privilege grant, he called it in a, in a cheeky way. Months and months and months went by after he collected these donations, though, and no one seemed to know what was happening with them. No one seemed to know how the grant was being given, how to apply for it, what was going on. And Milo, thankfully, had hired a very organized woman named Margaret McLennan, who was big in the Gamergate days, uh, to run, run this white privilege grant. She sent emails, she 
you know, made sure all the money was supposed to go where it was supposed to, set the website up, all these different things. Uh, and when questions started being asked about where all the money had gone, Milo Yiannopoulos told us all that out of nowhere, Margaret McLennan had just lost her mind and ruined the privilege grant, made it all fall apart, started to spread rumors about Milo and tried to ruin his life. I guess uh, much like Alam, she was just another woman that had suddenly turned to the far left and become a spy for them and uh, was, was trying to ruin Milo. And we believed it. I don't know why. I don't know why. I still believed things Milo told me at that point. I had some sort of Stockholm syndrome of him being like the head of the, the conservative movement, the biggest figure in there, and everything he said was just like God's word, right? But I, I remember even talking to people and being like, oh yeah, that Margaret McLennan chick, she, she's a bit crazy, isn't she? She went crazy on Milo. Milo warned me about her. And even without any evidence or facts, you just believed what Milo told you. And once again, it wasn't until months and months later that I discovered Margaret had tried to tell her side of the story, but she just didn't have the platform for it. She had tried to tweet out the evidence. She had tried to explain what happened to the privilege grant, but most people didn't see it because she wasn't the one with the Breitbart byline. She wasn't the one with millions of viewers. She was just the support staff that got thrown under the bus. Margaret didn't steal any of the money. In fact, she published actual receipts, actual emails showing all of the money got transferred into Milo Yiannopoulos' bank account. And now I'm proud to be one of the loudest voices criticizing the grant after I found what I believe to be internal mishandling. My name was removed from marketing materials, and Milo later attempted to shift blame for mismanagement of the grant onto me. My access as director was restricted to answering emails forwarded from the grant site, where I directed prospective applicants to wait, and I directed donors to wire money to a personal bank account owned by Annopolis. The paperwork to sign ourselves as a charity was kicked down the road, and the grant was only addressed in public after major fundraising drives, when I spoke up to left-wing outlets in an effort to make sure the raised money would end up in the bank accounts of college students. He took all of it. He stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from working-class Americans to give to poor white young men who needed the help, and he just took it and then blamed his support staff, Margaret, ruining her life and her reputation so we could keep... Okay, a lot of good stuff in this Lauren Southern documentary about Tommy Robinson, Ezra Levant, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Paul Joseph Watson. Okay, moving on, there's a terrific regular column in tabletmag.com, which is a highbrow Jewish publication, and it's called My Favorite Anti-Semites. So various uh, authors talk about their favorite anti-Semites, and so one column recently is on a bloke, Hans-Jürgen Cyberberg. So he was a, I think he's still alive. He is a German movie director. His movies last on average about four hours. And there's some good stuff in this column that uh, Hans abhorred the duplicity of free speech in a liberal democracy where there were many things he wasn't allowed to say without suffering grave consequences. So he was not seeking to secure a place for himself in the discourse, merely to help nurture a culture of permanent debate. Right? His public speech is motivated by extra-personal stakes that take precedence over individual self-interest. Right? He was all about the duty. He made a something like a five-hour movie on Adolf Hitler that, that uh, came out in 1980 and received great acclaim in, in the United States and in the West but it was uh, wildly, widely uh, condemned in, in Germany. So Germans didn't like it. Uh, there's interesting allusion here to Jonathan Bowden. So British tavern orator and alt-right icon Jonathan Bowden compared Cyberberg to Lenny Riefenstahl, right, that a key to Cyberberg's... Uh, seen in this movie on Hitler is that the Shoah, the Holocaust, is totally accepted as a fact for which there is no apology. So this is not a denial of information, it is a struggle over interpretation. So Cyberberg accepts the Holocaust as history, it's the Holocaust as ideology that he opposes. And I think this is generally true in distant circles. It's not, 
among the more intelligent elements of dissident circles. It's not the history of the Holocaust that they oppose. It's the Holocaust's ideology that more thoughtful people oppose as opposed to the historicity. So Cyberberg's concern was not the Holocaust. It was the Holocaust, right? And his anti-guilt pledge was a refusal to be imprisoned by the consequences of the Holocaust. So he premiered his movie in London on Hitler in November 1977. So he said, Germany is not ready for this Hitler. And in West Germany, he was greeted with almost universal rejection. But in America, as well as France, it was applauded. Michel Foucault called the film A Beautiful Monster, said that Cyberberg had grasped Nazism at its most seductive. And... Cyberberg passionately despised the American TV miniseries Holocaust. He saw it as a tawdry spectacle of slipper-wearing, beer-sipping Germans wallowing in their imported own guilt and shame. In front of the TV is a sign of a fundamentally unmoored culture. In Germany, Holocaust now means Hollywood, he lamented. He anticipated a Holocaust boom. He imagined on German soil a Hitler Disneyland with a rebuilt concentration camp instead of German castles. Tourists would target Hitler's house, rebuilt with Jewish management. And he had some fascinating interactions with uh, Holocaust survivors. And there's this one, one survivor of the Holocaust who, who denounced, he denounced his Cyberberg's Hitler film with a voice trembling with quiet rage. He told the director the film was dreadful because even though this survivor had lost most of his family in the Holocaust, by watching this film on Hitler, he could almost be tempted to become a Nazi after all those speeches, all that beautiful music. And uh, Cyberberg claims that another screening in Hamburg, an old Jew came up to him and said, now I know why I was in a concentration camp. So you don't just watch his movies. They're, they're an experience of radical disorientation. And they were tiny victories in Cyberberg's guerrilla war against the dominant narrative. And so Cyberberg would do battle with a system that he knew would retaliate. Right? He would go deep into the wound. He would find the taboos in the discourse. He would find the weak points and he would show that the conventional discourse was just another form of power imposing its own values, not a carrier of universal moral and ideological progress. And another book that makes a similar point is a work in progress by Ronnie Goldman. Conservative claims of cultural oppression, the nature and origins of conservophobia. So this is a left-wing bloke who chooses left-wing critiques and turns them, however, against the left. It's a uh, fascinating work, right? So people on the left, liberals insist on diversity, tolerance, and equal respect. Well, now, why won't conservatives insist that they be afforded the genuine articles rather than Orwellian inversions that uh, liberalism, in fact, offers? So what is my stream called? The Revolutionary Spirit, right? E. Michael Jones wrote a book on the revolutionary spirit. So it's talked about by Ronnie Goodman. He says the political revolution envisioned by liberals 
could never truly succeed in a democratic society with free elections. But the revolutionary spirit had to become channeled into cultural life. So the left-wing revolutionary spirit of the, the left-wing activist has come to dominate our cultural life. It has achieved its ends in our cultural institutions rather than on the streets as it steadily erodes values rather than toppling regimes. Right? It works by incremental infiltration rather than direct confrontation. So today's revolutionary spirit, today's cultural liberalism is the final product of a progressive century-long effort by a small minority of discontented bohemians to impose their values upon the wider society. So the original bohemians saw their way of life as appropriate only for a select few, those rare superior souls capable of throwing off the shackles of bourgeois convention. Right? They didn't want to proselytize to the world their free-spiritedness. They viewed themselves as exceptional people whose singular spiritual independence was beyond the reach of the masses. But with the democratization of Bohemia, what was once the subculture and a curiosity has become the dominant culture and now even an orthodoxy. So the immoralism, it was previously a hobby of academics and Bohemians, it is mutated into a corrosive social nihilism that attacks the very foundations of the American spirit. So there's the title for this video. There's the thesis, The Revolutionary Spirit versus the American Spirit. So people on the left and liberals, they understand their way of thinking, their creed as a progressive overcoming of the prejudices and blind spots that formally impeded the fullest realizations of liberalism's highest ideals. But those conservatives who can claim cultural oppression, they see the ever-growing stronger march of the left as the replacement of certain prejudices by new prejudices. It's not the purification of liberalism. Really, it's a colonization by a parochial sensibility and interest group. So modern liberalism is not the final fulfillment of some original promise laying at the core of the American project. It is an ideological perversion of the authentic classical liberalism that was bequeathed to us in the 18th century. It's a cancerous overreaching of certain liberal tendencies, which laudable when shaped and constrained by traditional values, but they become pernicious and corrosive once unhinged from these. So contemporary liberalism undermines the classical liberal virtues of individualism, independence, and rationality by perverting them into selfishness, pride, skepticism, and nihilism. But these are what individualism, independence, and rationality must devolve into once these virtues are uprooted from their moorings in religious piety and moral discipline, which is the historical context in which they developed in the 18th century. So we now have a culture clash between the populist conservatives and the cognitive elite that is hell-bent on enlightening them. We've got a division that is rapidly replacing the old distinction of liberal and conservative, left and right, Republican and Democrat. So the older political categories presuppose that intelligent people could disagree politically. But the new cognitive elite of liberalism display a disdain and contempt for those who disagree with them. Right? It's the crude intellectual snobbery of the schoolboy with a high IQ loves to torment his inferiors by scoffing at their dullness, just the way that I, I treat uh, Laponius. So the old-time left-wingers and right-wingers used to despise each other, but they recognized that they were comparable species. They were two points on a spectrum with a center in between. Right? They were two old troopers used to competing for the same vaudeville booking. But by contrast, the ahead leftists of today know nothing of any political spectrum. They're not content to defend their beliefs as true, 
and they're not content to critique conservative beliefs as false. Rather, they classify themselves as rational and their opponents as irrational. They define themselves as the center, the objective ones, the responsible mainstream, the only sane place to be. So there's this asymmetry where liberal elites reflexively dismiss opposing views, and there's no symmetry to this on the right. right. And this is kind of one more legacy of the despised 1960s. So it used to have a WASP establishment that saw itself as the nation's high end. It was the top of a vertical spectrum. But the new ruling class of the left, the post-religious, the globalist intellectuals, now see themselves separated by a cultural Grand Canyon from the nation at large. They've got Harvard and the New York Times and the Boston Symphony and science and technology and iPhones and organic lattes on their side. On the other side, you've only got guns, churches, and NASCAR. So, Ken Brown, deep left joker, he is now defending Drag Queen Story Hour. Yes. And there are some politically incorrect statistics out there concerning grooming, concerning different populations, different categories, different identities, and the sadistic behaviors against prepubescent children. You can never, I don't think it's possible to say that all, uh, I remember there was that Milo interview he did with Joe Rogan, which was uh, a key moment in this whole discussion where Milo was previously in the public. I mean, he was on Joe Rogan, right? So it's, you've pretty much made it when you're on Joe Rogan. And then he was no more to be seen. It was because of a very specific topic, a very specific taboo was brought up. So that has to be acknowledged as a factor, but I think Milo himself would say and argue, or I don't know, I haven't kept up with him, but I think there's a case to be made that you know, while there is a statistical difference at hand relating to this issue, again, it's an issue that you can't speak about, but even though there is a statistical difference, I wouldn't go so far as to say you know, all, all of those who are engaged in Drag Queen Story Hour are engaged in this intention. So those who are, I think anybody who's, you know, against... I mean, this is, this is hit whoring, all right? To, to make a video in defense of Drag Queen Story Hour, right? All right, Drag Queen Story Hour is drag queens coming in and reading stories to toddlers, right? To, to defend this is beyond the pale. The abuse of children is going to agree that's bad you know there's there's really no way around that but that's not the only element that's not the only motivation this this grooming aspect is not the only aspect and oh yeah so looking at the chat reminds me much of lauren's new documentaries about how people on the distant right are all st storing up uh, blackmail information on each other like who's doing coke and who's patronizing whores so th the best way to avoid these situations is not the obvious, you know, don't do drugs, guys, stay off the crack, stay in yeshiva, you know, don't patronize those, those hookers. No, the best way to stay out of this is to have a job, have responsibilities, and be selective with the people that you spend time with, right? And have a good antenna for, for, for grifters and dishonorable people. And it's fairly easy to figure out who's a decent person, who's a bad person. Good people make you feel good. Bad people make you feel bad, right? You should not feel icky after watching this show, right? If watching this show is either a neutral or a positive experience, 
and you don't hate yourself after you tune out from the show, then the show may be neutral to good for you. But if you're watching stuff or hanging out with people that consistently make you feel bad, then those people are bad for you. They're bad people. Stay away. And the superficial way in which people are dealing with this issue, frankly, I'm kind of just... Sometimes the superficial is the right way, right? Sometimes you don't need to think deeply about drag queens reading stories to little kids. Disgusted by it. Because you'll see someone like a Hannity, and maybe not Hannity specifically, but his ilk, they'll say, oh yeah, we'll support Caitlyn Jenner or the Republican governor of California. But, you know, drag queen story hour is just too far. You know, we support... Drag queen story hour is drag queens reading stories to little kids, right? Anyone who's not repulsed by that, there's something wrong with you. And you don't have to be able to articulate some, you know, broad universalist, you know, rational objection. Like everyone in their gut should be appalled by that sort of thing. That's it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.